And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello! I am Harmony. I'm Maggie. Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. Yay! We're reading in honor of Earth Day, which is coming up on a day that I don't remember. It's the 20th. The 20th. Okay, so. so wow, that's like not far from when this episode is released. We're reading The Bees today by Laline Paul. Ah, uh, it's the 22nd. Sorry. Yeah, I think so. The 22nd. All right. Well, Earth Day is happening, and I hope that you're all staying inside so that the Earth can breathe and, you know, trying to limit your waste so yeah. that the Earth doesn't have to deal with it. Yay! Start a compost. Yeah, so we're reading The Bees by Laleen Paul, and it's a really good book. Maggie, what are your initial thoughts on this book? I know this is your second reading. So my first time when I read it, I thought it was good, but I think I felt it was a little bit repetitive. I intended, I read it semi-recently, so I didn't intend to fully reread it before we did this episode. And then when I started like thinking about it a couple of days ago, I went back to just skim it and I ended up rereading the whole thing because it was really good. And I think that for me, this book really benefited from a lens to analyze it because I think that looking from it specifically from this feminist lens really gave me a basis and a grounding for everything that was happening. And I think that the first time I read it, it felt so trippy and so just kind of metaphor and symbolically dense that it was harder for me to parse everything out. So like, for me, this was much richer and a much deeper experience the second read around. Okay, yeah. I don't think I found it as trippy as, but I think, so Maggie prepped me before I read this book and she was like, this book's gonna be real trippy. And I'm used to like psychedelic trippy books as in like the Kurt Vonnegut, Tom Robbins sort of trippy. And so I read this and I was like, this is weird. But I think I got into it and maybe it's because I had a lens to analyze it through. I think I got into it pretty fast. I had been really struggling with reading paperbacks or just like reading instead of audiobooking since the quarantine happened. And I picked this up and I was like, oh, this feels natural. I like reading again. Yeah, (laughs) I think for me, I just... I didn't know very much about the book the first time I picked it up. So when it was actually from the point of view of a bee, I was kind of like (laughs) ill prepared, if that makes (laughs) sense. And so everything that just kept happening, I was like, what the fuck is this? I think also, though, and this gets into a lot of the points that we want to make. Part of the reason that I found it trippy was that it is pretty true to the way that bees actually function But it is also a terrifying mirror to a lot of aspects of our human society. So I think for me, all three of those things put together was just like, what in God's name is happening here? Like, I get that. It's a lot to deal with at once. I know absolutely nothing about bees. And I kept on having to pause and be like, no, is that real? It kind of sounds real, but there's no way that's real. And then like looking shit up and being like, oh, shit. (laughs) Yeah, that's actually how bees function. 
<laughs> wow. I mean, except for the religious aspect, right? Or does the religious aspect correspond to like the pheromones that the queen gives off? I think that was what it was supposed to be, but I don't I don't think there's any research that suggests that bees have the brain capacity to kind of create more of that religious structure. Although it's kind of hard to say because the more we research about any animal, I feel like the more we see that what their brains can comprehend is more than we've ever, you know, kind of assumed in the past. Um, So like, I know that bees have like specific languages and specific names and stuff like that, but I don't think that there's any real evidence to say that they have sort of larger abstract thinking like that. Yeah. Like the idea of worship. Yeah. I think that was just a useful way to talk about how strong the pheromones are and also more of like a mirror to what, we tend to be up to as people. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so what do you want to start with in this book? Should we give a summary? We haven't given anyone a summary yet. Yeah. (laughs) So this book is about a bee named Flora 717, who is born as a sanitation worker, which means that in theory, she should look exactly like the rest of the hive and be voiceless and just kind of go about doing her cleaning job um, for the rest of the bees But instead, Flora is born with a voice, and she also looks a lot different than the rest of her hive. Um, And because of this, sort of the higher powers at B take an interest in her, and she ends up on a journey where she moves through and discovers and gets to work in many other factions of the hive and gets to see and do many jobs of the other bees and understand more about the way their society works until ultimately she ends up illegally for lack of a better term, having her own babies. Um, And this ends up being because their queen unbeknownst to them is dying. She's at the end of her natural life cycle. So they have to have a new queen to take over. And one of Flora's babies at the very end of the novel actually ends up being the new queen for the whole hive. Yes. Yes. And so at the beginning of this book, there's a big emphasis placed on uniformity. So even though Flora is different, she is unique, not only because she's different, but because she's allowed to live despite her uniqueness. Because in the very beginning of the book, what we get is people being killed or bees being killed because they have some sort of, I I guess it wouldn't even be like a disfigurement. They're just different than what they're supposed to be. Yeah, they're abnormal. That's what it is. And it's very brutal and violent. (laughs) Yeah, and that's everything from, like, being the wrong color, which in this book, Flora 717, is she's much darker and much hairier than the rest of her hive, which we'll get into because that plays into a lot of the racial implications in the book as well. But um, Mm -hmm. it also means that there's other bees who are also kind of secretly having babies and get caught and, like, their babies are really brutally dismembered and then they're very brutally dismembered. Um. But I would say that while that sounds like a low-key progressive thing in the case of Flora 717, it's really kind of fucked up because the only reason she's allowed to live is essentially so that one of the priestesses can, like, experiment on her. And it's akin to torture in many ways and reminded me in some ways actually of, like, the eugenics movement in the United States and things like that Mm -hmm. because it's a lot about reproductive control, but also like how smart you can be if you're different and things like that. And it's like a very, she's allowed to live and it's good and necessary because she's our main character, but it's under very fucked up and suspicious circumstances. 
Yeah, so let's talk a little bit. This book really reminded me of like 1984 and Brave New World in some aspects, or even Handmaid's Tale, because it definitely rings true of like every dystopian society ever. But it is a beehive, and it is supposed to be semi-accurate in the ways that you can be if you're personifying a bunch of bees. Yeah. Um, which I guess is what you were getting out about the trippy, the trippy aspect. So let's talk about like hierarchy. That was the first point we had. So mm-hmm. in the beehive, you need hierarchy and that's how bees operate. You have your queen and then you have different roles for each of the bees. Mm-hmm. And Flora is at the very bottom. She's a sanitation worker. She apparently didn't even like directly come from a specific flower, which all the other bee species have. So you have like the thistle and then you have the sage, you have the tree soul. Is that what you, how you call it? I don't know, but you're, but you're correct. All of the other bee categories are specific like bee flower genuses and flora is just flower. Yes. And the bee, the bees have like all of this mythology surrounding their own society and culture and floras are continually left out of the history. They're just not mentioned or not included at all. And they have to, they have to do the bidding of every other species because they're like the lowest at the bottom pole, at yeah. the totem pole. So I wanted to know what you thought about this because we are personifying bees. And it made me really uncomfortable because even at the, even though this book shows a character like breaking the reins of her society and overcoming, we still end up in a hierarchy model. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to know what you thought of that because we are personifying bees. So, like, do we as a society, is this book advocating for us as a society needing some sort of hierarchy to function? You know, I think that's a really interesting question because while this book does end up in a hierarchy, the hierarchy is much different because it gets essentially flipped on its head because now the flora are the ladies and waiting for the new queen. So the Mm -hmm. hierarchy gets really jumbled. And I think that at the very least, this book advocates for the fact that bees can't survive without hierarchy. I think that there is some aspect where it's saying that even in the human world, every job needs to be done regardless of of what it's like social status is essentially and i think it potentially does imply that a hierarchy can be helpful in achieving that but i think that's something that's difficult to draw any conclusions from about this book is that we only ever see the inside of this one system because the system changes at the end and that's where the book ends so it's hard to know like does the hierarchy actually you know like fictionally change and evolve with this new queen and with this new pecking order or is it the same um so i think that potentially there could be an argument for the fact that hierarchy is necessary but i i think it's difficult also because this book so clearly advocates for the fact that no matter what status you're born at you can actually do everything and every job Because that's what Flora does, right? So, like, I don't have a clear answer for you. Thank you. I appreciate that. There's also, like, something that I didn't write in our notes. But as I noticed when I was reading this book towards the beginning, like, there's also a big question of diversity in that, like, bees do kill abnormal 
bees. But when you do that, you're not allowing your hive to evolve. And even though that was the case in Flora's hive, we see from the different mythology that the bees have about their culture that like what Flora ended up doing was necessary and always happens. So like there needs to be some sort of diversity and shake up in order for the species to continue. Yeah, absolutely. I think that something that is unique to the book and to bee culture, though, that doesn't relate necessarily to our human culture, though, is the fact that the reason that all of this happened with Flora was because the queen was dying anyway. She was Mm -hmm. at the end of her natural life cycle. So, like, I think there's an argument to be made about, like, would allowing all of these otherwise thought of abnormal bees... Would allowing them to live the entire time have actually, you know, probably made the hive prosper rather than only allowing Flora to kind of live on a whim, even though it ended up being necessary? Like, I think that there's a a hint there where it's like, if if this diversity had been allowed to prosper the entire time, on the one hand, maybe the hierarchy would have crumbled, but on the other hand, it would have made the hive more resilient. Yeah, but the way that bees work, like, you still need the hierarchy because there's only one that's allowed to reproduce yeah that's why i was saying that that part of it doesn't necessarily correlate so much with society like i think it asks deeper societal questions but in the end the answer relates to you're right the way bees work where it's like there can only be kind of one thing going on until the queen is ready to die essentially well yeah and i'm just thinking about it because like maggie and i are both people from the united states and Our whole country was founded on the idea of the Republic. And in a lot of ways, we can be more diverse in our leadership roles, not in terms of like gender or race or anything, because God forbid, but (laughs) in terms of like we have more leaders than some other countries do. Yeah. Although a lot of other countries have adopted the Republic status. Yeah, but, like, we still only have one president, and we still have a very clear hierarchy. Even with our senators and representatives, there are a lot of times in which, like, the people themselves don't have any say in politics. Most of the time, actually, we don't have any say in politics and what goes on in our leadership. So I don't think that that I... No, you go. (laughs) No, you're fine. I was going to riff off your point, so keep going. Oh, I just I don't see a society out there in which that has not been the case in which we don't have a clear leadership minority. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think also, just to be clear with the gender and diversity thing, Harmony was being sarcastic. (laughs) But I think that's something that really disturbed me about this book was the constant mantra except obey and serve that hit like real close to home i think especially for the way the masses are supposed to think and behave in the united states it's not so blatant as that mantra right but like you vote your representatives into power and then they have the power to make decisions right so it's like You have to accept the outcome and then obey and serve the country and whatever ends up happening, you know, like, because it's not a true democracy where everyone's vote is actually a say, right, in the laws that are passed and things like that, um, you end up needing to just kind of 
live with whatever happens, even if it's against your choice or, or your ideology, which is a lot of what ends up happening to Flora in this book, is that she disagrees with lots of things and has to continue to put out this persona of accepting, obeying, and serving while having to also kind of sometimes sneakily, sometimes overtly, like really challenge the system to get to the places that she wants. Yeah. Although I don't think it's like a clear, clear parallel because at least in the United States and at least in a lot of countries, although still not in some, we still have the ability to say, hey, we don't like this. Like it may not do anything, but in Flora's case, she can't even voice dissent. And it's like so brainwashed into her, which is why it really reminds me of 1984, A Brave New World, because we're like, dealing with such heavy brainwashing and propaganda it's really brainwashed into her that like to dissent is to sin and i think also something that's really important to emphasize here is the fact that i think this really reminded me a lot of capitalist society specifically too is that even though everyone has their jobs and they're very strict about it, the people at the bottom, like the sanitation workers, literally do not have a voice. They Mm -hmm. don't even have access to the hive mind except to receive the queen's love. So like the idea of having a voice at all ends up being a privilege that Flora has and like the ability to think for herself that many other people at for lack of a better term, her class level do not have. Like the ability to dissent here is really complicated, I think, because even though Flora can't dissent in many ways, she does have much more power to do that than the rest of the sanitation workers of of the class that she was born into. Yes. And that's only because, like, they're, yeah, the the sanitation workers, it sounds like, weren't born without voices, or if they were, they were, like, manufactured to not have voices, because they do at one point take their voices back. And Flora at one point has her voice stolen from her after she has um, done another role, because the sage priestesses don't want her to get too prideful and too used to, like, doing things outside of her class. Yeah. There's actually a quote about that that I wanted to read in terms of the sanitation workers. I actually have a quote that relates to this. Can I can I read mine first while you're looking for yours? Yes. So this is also about the sanitation workers, but I think plays off a different idea than what Harmony, Harmony was saying. The idea of the hierarchy here is so intense that there's even hierarchies within hierarchies, mm-hmm. which is important to note. So on page 38, it says... Despite their status as lowest of the low, even in the kin of sanitation, there was a hierarchy of ability. Certain floras could leave the dull thudding foot tracks and collect waste from difficult areas, and these sisters were also used to make short waste disposal flights with corpses or particularly foul-smelling loads, dropping them a hygienic distance away from the hive. The second group to which Flora belonged experienced such agony in their antennae if they diverged but one step from their ordained track that the outer limit of their roaming was down to the morgue or the freight holding area, both on the lowest level of the hive and near the landing port. Sometimes Flora would pause there, where the vast foreign scent of air swirled so strong about her body that her wing joints trembled with a strange sensation, but to dwell on it was to invite pain and to return to her duties relief. Oh my god. Wow. 
So floor is like the lowest of the low, even within the sanitation workers. Yeah. So like this hierarchy is so intensely strict that like even within these structures, like there are places in which you can get ahead and places in which you can't get ahead. And like Flora 717 is at the absolute kind of bottom of this pile. Yes. All right. In regards to the voice, I have my quote now. So this is page 256. The living orb of sisters still pulsed with gossip of the mouse when Flora got back. To her astonishment, she heard the sanitation workers talking in low voices. She took her place and looked at them. They were smiling. In the dreaming, one whispered, we took back our tongues. Then the scent of the kin of sage flowed toward them as the priestesses returned. All the bees stopped talking and parted to let them disappear within the cluster. So they like, they do have the ability to take back their tongues. They're just not permitted. And we'll get into that a little bit later when we talk about the nurture versus nature um, argument going on throughout this book as well. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the the treatment of the sanitation workers is abhorrent. And reading this book, like, throughout, I kept on being surprised that Flora wasn't killed because she was the only being we saw that got to get away with so much and, like, continually publicly fucked up. (laughs) She did. And on top of that, though, she was also able to save herself a lot with her own wits and the things that she had learned from moving from like kind of job to job she was able to take knowledge from like this thing and knowledge from this thing and then apply it to what she was dealing with but I agree I do think that ultimately something that keeps this book I guess from a craft perspective from being five stars for me even though I really really enjoyed it was that like that aspect really felt unrealistic to me (laughs) like (laughs) It just seemed like she got in trouble so much and squeaked away every single time without consequences for the most part that it was like, okay, like, I think she got sent back to the sanitation workers twice, but even then was able to to wiggle her way back out of it, which like, on the one hand was great resourcefulness. But on the other hand, as a reader, I think I wished for just like a little bit more of like consequences and tension on that front. But that's kind of a separate thing. I get that. Kind of sort of related along those lines. I was kind of bothered by the fact that like this book is all about like transcending your class and or race, I guess, or like the limitations placed on you. But Flora, despite the fact that like now the the other Floras are going to be ladies in waiting by the end of this book, Flora was for most of the book really the only one who got to transcend And Mm -hmm. even though she grows to have more kinship with her sisters, we still really don't see her sisters very often. And we don't get to know any of them as individuals. None of them are named, despite the fact that other bees are named all the time and, like, are given individual personalities. And it just feels... That part, I think, bothered me because I I really, as we've talked about in the podcast before, I really am okay with, like, unrealistic in terms of like wish fulfillment or I I like to see characters succeed like that's my favorite thing even if it is unrealistic but I think the fact that Flora wasn't able to bring any of her sisters with her which I guess could be realistic because she was the only one given the privilege really really bothered me I would have liked to see more of her kind being able to transcend. And we do kind of get that a little bit in terms of their voices 
and like the acknowledgement that they have intelligence, but not really. <laughs> I think it was a little bit frustrating for my end because since Flora dies before she gets to see any of the change actually be enacted, like I, I think it just felt like a very typical martyr story almost like you could almost feel the parallel between the six stories that are embedded in the hive right and the fact that flora's story and flora's sacrifice is going to be one of the one of the stories in the new hive right like it's very it's very parable-y in that way and i think in that sense that's the reason that she's kind of like the sole heroine but i agree that for a story of, I guess, revolution, ultimately, it would have been more satisfying if we had gotten to see more of the sanitation workers, even just be given more respect, more like acknowledgement of everything that they do, you know, even if they weren't able to transcend quite as much, but it was very much just like this one little bee changing the world. But then at the same time, that's the way so many stories work, you know, like the chosen one changes the world. So I don't know. I agree with you, though. That aspect was frustrating. I think, honestly, even if we had had, like, a sidekick sanitation worker, like, at least one other sanitation worker who was given a definitive personality and who was maybe, like, Flora's best friend, I would have been more satisfied because then at least we would, like, have more identity in that in that cast. Yeah, because the only friendship we ever really see Flora kind of make is with Lily 500, And Lily 500 is dead through most of the novel. She is communicating with the data, essentially, that Lily 500 left behind um, after discovering poison, essentially. So while Lily 500 sort of lives on in Flora's mind, the amount of actual, like, both of them being living interaction they have is extremely limited. I mean, I think part of that goes back to the power structure of the hive though like i don't think anyone is really friends within the hive i mean flora at one point like does kind of make friends not just with lily 500 but with other foragers like they grow to respect her and like they sleep together and they like acknowledge each other and everyone's like really happy about her cool dance moves but i think that part of this stuff that i want to get to in just a second it has to do with the fact that like relationships with other people especially relationships outside of your caste system are threatening to hierarchy especially given the fact that lily 500 specifically does not fit the mold of what a typical bee should think like on page 88 flora is following lily around because she desperately wants to fly and she says Wait, please, Flora ran after her. Madam Forager, do you have any work for me? I will serve in any way. If you followed the dance, then you know where to go. The Forager walked more briskly. Shocked, Flora hurried alongside her. But my kin may never forage, it is written. I read flowers, not scriptures, but I know our hive is in grievous need of food and that you have wings and courage and a brain. Do not annoy me by asking permission. Lily 500 pushed her way out into the lobby. On top of that, Lily has a much more open mind to everything than the rest of the bees do. And like she says, part of it is because this hive in general is on the brink of destruction anyways. So like they do need all the help that they can get. But yeah, 
I would argue that the foragers in general are kind of presented as having more of an open mind than the rest of the caste system. And I think part of that, if we're going to go into metaphor, is because they're able to leave the hive. So they've seen more of the world and they know more. And I think because their job is so dangerous and it's like their only purpose is to like talk with flowers. Like they don't have any time to deal with bigotry. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. For sure. Before we move from hierarchy, I want to talk real quick about something you mentioned a while ago in terms of the fact that this story only works because of the queen because the queen is dying. And I'm no expert in Marxism or anything or any sort of philosophy. But what I do know from what I remember from undergraduate classes is that it's power structures. I mean, don't stay the same and can't stay the same and aren't sustainable long term in general. And so I wonder if this shakeup is kind of indicative of that, or if the book is talking about that, like that power structures have to change in order for human civilization to survive. Like it needs to be shaken up regardless. I think so. But like we were talking about earlier, I think that point is complicated by the fact that we end up in another hierarchy and we don't see how that one plays out as similarly or differently than this one yeah but at least the people in power have changed like you can't have the same people in power even in monarchies no matter what people get angry and start killing people and then new people come into play yeah for sure okay all right let's move on what do you want to talk about do you want to talk about the queen's love and relationships because we were kind of talking about that before yeah let's do that and then talk about reproductive control as part of that, because I think they're really similar, mm-hmm. kind of one in the same. Okay. So what struck me about the Queen's love is that there's a, towards the end of the book, there's a quote that I will read if I can find it. Let's see. Page 305. So Flora is talking about, she's the sage priestess has found her out and she knows that she has a baby and she's like, nah, bitch, you can't have a baby. And Flora's like, no, I love my baby. Kill me, but keep my baby alive. Okay, so. Love, Sister Sage had the little girl in her claws and held her up in front of her mother's face. That is what flowers are for. Foragers made less to their hot hurt and bodies content for them. But the sacrament of birth is beyond you. Flora's baby screamed and writhed in the priestess's grip, and the sage struck her across the face. 304. When I was with Holy Mother in her chamber, she gave me her love, and then when I laid, I felt it for my own eggs, and I changed. Changed, 717, from an ugly, monstrous deviant that should have been killed on emergence? What prey do you think you changed into? A loving mother. Sister Sage burst out laughing. Love. Love is something only the queen can feel for a child. So I think that is interesting that like the bees aren't encouraged to love at all and that it's thought of as impossible. And like Flora's Flora's bravery and loving means that she is too prideful. And uh, Sister Sage goes on to say, let's see. You thought yourself clean, she hissed. The spiders warned you. Oh, yes, I know all about that. And then goes on to talk about some other stuff that we were not getting into. But the fact that 
Flora decided to love at all was like, but I mean, it's being directly paralleled to the monarchy. The fact that she loves means that she is a threat to the monarchy and that she's abnormal and weird and super prideful. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> I I actually had that same page marked as well. Actually, the first quote that you uh, read um, talking about reproductive control because they're so, to me, intertwined because the queen's love and the fact that they have the queen's love, which in this specific quote that you're talking about is something that Flora is able to feel for her offspring. But generally speaking throughout the book, the queen's love is like a pheromone drug that she puts out throughout the hive that makes them feel safe and secure and things like that. Mm -hmm. So it's also part of the way that she controls them because she feels she fulfills all of their needs on that front through this flood of pheromones. And that's part of the reason why Flora feels such terror when her first egg comes on page 106 is because a, she's, she knows she's done something wrong. Right. But also like there's this feeling of, what she begins to know is love when she decides that she needs to protect the egg at all costs, that she can't get rid of it and things like that. So the queen's love is like on one hand, extraordinarily powerful drug, but in another way, a kind of manipulative way that the queen exerts her force throughout the entire hive. Because for the most part, the queen herself is not, an evil sort of character, right? Like it's her priestesses, the sages who are the ones out here, you know, striking terror into the people and meeting out her justice and things like that. But the queen the entire time is described as being loving and, and forgiving. So on page 182, it says, mother, I have sinned. Forgive me. She could not go on. We do, beloved, and we always will because you are our child. I do not deserve it. At the queen's soft touch, Flora began to weep. Enough. Holy Mother must conserve her strength. Ladies-in-waiting ushered her majesty away, and the crowd dispersed from the lobby. It takes so little attention for Flora to just be sort of enthralled by the queen again. The queen is always, even when she's dying, a loving and motherly character. It's the others that go out here kind of manipulating the queen's love and making it a tool of terror and using it as justice on her behalf. Yeah, it's very complicated because the queen herself is a violent figure. And we discover later on in the book, when we see Flora's daughter rise to queen, that you have to be violent and brutal mm -hmm. in order to lead or to become a queen. Yeah, because you have to murder, because you have to murder all of your sisters. Yeah, you have to murder your sisters. You have to mur murder your mates. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of murder involved. There's a lot of murder involved. But yeah, you're right. I also took the quote from when she's dying and pointing that out because like yeah when she's dying her she she forgives them she forgives them for killing her she asks for a specific sister to kill her and she like she tells them that she loves them and she just wants to love them and like let her love radiate onto them but it is complicated because she is a monarch and even though she doesn't know entirely what the sister sages are doing like she she doesn't do anything to stop it. She kind of knows. She has to know. <laughs> yeah. And 
she she clearly has delegated power in that way right so that she can be seen as this like all-knowing all-loving all-forgiving character Mm -hmm. and i think something that i find interesting about the parallel as flora becomes a mother is that like flora ends up i think in many ways identifying with those aspects of the queen and separating out the fact that like the sages are doing her dirty work because she now feels this queen's love as well right so it's like she identifies with how the queen mother feels in that way as she's like so devoted to her egg it's like soul shaking for her Mm -hmm. but doesn't really recognize the fact that like the queen the reason the sages can act the way they do is because the queen has at least given an implicit okay to it. Yeah. It's interesting because the queen's love is what keeps the monarchy going. It like keeps the hive alive and keeps everyone in their places doing what they're supposed to do for the betterment of the entire hive. However, it is also a threat to the hive, like love in general. And when Flora ends up having her egg, her love for the good of be kind is opposed to the idea of her love for a single child. Yeah. I think something that's also interesting about this that's different from human society in some ways, but I think also draws parallels is that in the aspect of reproductive control, the ability to make eggs and the ability to like nourish and keep eggs alive are separated. So like when we're talking about reproductive control, it really is or is supposed to be just about the ability to make eggs. But Flora ends up breaking down that barrier. At the very beginning, the first job she does outside of sanitation is she goes to the nursery where she's allowed to feed Flo, which is, for comparing it to human, essentially like super-powered breast milk <laughs> to, to the babies. And she's really good at it. She has like this crazy supply. She's excellent at it. But that's, you know, done by her and by the other bees in the nursery. But when Flora has her babies herself, because of the way that it happens and because she's ostracized, she ends up having to be both mother and nurturer, which I do think is really interesting because it almost, at least in a human perspective, I think brings in certain ways, like the way that we view motherhood, right? Where it's just like, you know, humans have their babies and then take care of their babies Hmm. in whatever way is best for them after they're born. And so Flora almost discovers this new, very human kind of love when she's able to nourish with Flo, which is extra interesting because she is so old and a bee standard by this point that the fact that she can even make Flo anymore is like absolutely shocking. Yeah, I think it's this idea of individualized love. Like there's a reason the queen doesn't nurture her children it's because then she wouldn't be eight like she can't nurture eight million children or eight thousand or however many bees it is right you you would have to give individualized attention to everyone and you can't and if you did that then you might like favor one over the other and then the good of the hive wouldn't be like your ultimate goal but flora and her individual love is able to like take the good of the hive and throw it out. And she's talking about like killing people. And she betrays the queen at one point by telling um, the priestesses that the queen is sick in order to protect her egg. So like nothing is more important than this one individual life for her. Which I think is really interesting because while the queen isn't able to individually nurture every single bee, 
she does take a special interest in Flora mm-hmm. and does end up individually nurturing her throughout the novel. Um, the fact that any bee really gets the level of indi- individualized attention from the queen that Flora does is unheard of, let alone, again, a bee that was born as a sanitation worker, because generally speaking, if she had stayed in her lane, so to speak, she would never have had any contact or even seen the queen at all. She would have just felt the flow of her love. So it's like she she ended up accidentally getting individually nurtured by the queen and then passes that off to her children. I feel like that's a really good entryway into race because, or like the nurture versus nature argument that we're talking about here. So I did some research after reading this book and, um, I was like, wow, this has to be about race. Let me see. Let me see what Leline Paul identifies as. And she was a first generation uh, child born in London, but to Indian parent immigrants. And as an American, I don't know what it's like to be Indian in London. Like I know very little about it and what type of second class citizenship you may or may not receive. However, I thought that was really interesting. I also did further research which was like barely research. And I went on to her website and found on her about page that she talks a lot about this immigration and like how she succeeded and how her father would be so proud. And she says at one point um, on her about page, I believe nurture is easily as important as nature and that nurture is now what nature most needs. Nurture, protection, and champions. So I think that's really important because when we're talking about I mean, other literary figures or other figures throughout history who have succeeded despite their limitations, usually it's because they were able to befriend somebody who had some sort of power and agency. And that friendship helped them go beyond where they were supposed to see it, helped them rise beyond their hierarchical position. And I don't know, it's also interesting because we were talking about nature versus nurture before, but in order to make a princess... Or, or who's going to be a queen bee, all you have to do is, like, feed them more. <laughs> and um, and feed them flow specifically. Yeah, feed them flow specifically. Well, all the babies get flow. But I think that, like, I think it's implied, I don't think it's explicitly stated, but I think it's implied that, like, the floras are fed less flow. Like, I think it could be extended to all of the hierarchical positions and, like, maybe the type of flow that you get. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But in, like, in order to make drones, all you have to do is feed them flow. So, I mean, Flora never sets out to make a queen, but she ends up giving her, like, making her a queen because of that individualized love and attention. So it is all about nurturing. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the idea of having a champion is also extremely present in this novel because the first sister Sage she encounters, while, as we've discussed, had really dubious and kind of fucked up intentions for what was happening with flora still ended up being a champion for her to the point where she was able to nurture be nurtured enough so that she didn't need that champion anymore right like she was able to make her own decisions and make her own way through the world but if that one sister hadn't stood up for her at the beginning and put her in a couple of positions she wouldn't have been able to go on and do the rest of what she did, you know, throughout the novel, which I think is also really a complicated thing because on the one hand, it's like, I would never want to advocate for someone like looking for champions, even in the most unlikely of places. 
because obviously Sister Sage did not have Flora's best intentions or anything. But then I also think, especially in a capitalist society, that sort of thing kind of does happen a lot where like somebody could be advocating for you, even if it's not even because even if it's because they, it benefits them mm-hmm. or their curiosity and not for you. But like that kind of attention can sometimes still be helpful, if that makes sense, as long as you can recognize the fact that like this person does not have your best intentions at heart. And so you have to be either your own champion or find people who do have your best intentions at heart. Yeah, exactly. And Flora has a number of champions. It's not just the queen or sister sage, but the the mm-hmm. foragers end up being her champions and the other Flora end up being her champions. So the idea of solidarity runs very strongly in this book, despite the fact that it's very, very difficult for them to form deep relationships. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's really, it's really interesting. Um, I think especially because given the racial undertones of the book as well. So we talked about this earlier, but Flora 717 is a black bee and she's frequently called ugly and pointed out that she is specifically hairier than all of the other bees. She's bigger than her kin and everyone else is, you know, described as being very traditionally beautiful in the bee world. Especially Um, people who are um, higher up in the hierarchy. Yeah, who have a lot of power, which, you know, obviously puts Flora apart, I think, from a metaphorical racial standpoint. But Flora also struggles to, like, accept herself within the society and also the rest of her Flora kin through the society, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, her kin are are referred to as stupid and ugly as well. Like, it's not just Flora. Although Flora is different from her kin because she's physically larger and supposedly stronger mm-hmm. than most of the bees. Um, but yeah, her, her kin are referred to as stupid and ugly. And Flora herself kind of thinks that way until she understands that they have intelligence. And on page 2117, I think is the first... Maybe the first. You might have discovered it before this, but let's see. So the first worker shook her head in horror, and the others bobbed their antenna to emphasize that they did not. They gazed at her with bright, intelligent black eyes. So this is when she's finding out that the Floras have been supporting her all along, even though she's kind of shunned them and decided that she's going to go out and be a forager now and, like, doesn't do the same work as they do and, like, sees them sulking in the halls because they they walk walk very quietly and they walk... um, kind of hunchbacked because they're on the lowest totem pole. So she sees them and she like wants to separate herself from them. But at this point in the novel, she's discovered that they've been watching her and that they understand that she's transcending. And there seems to be like a sort of gratefulness. And they even know that she's betrayed the hive and the queen because she keeps laying eggs. Yeah. And I think something that's important here also is that like this sort of internalized self-hatred that Flora carries and then sort of projects onto the rest of her kin comes so much from the the way the rest of the bee society views the sanitation workers especially like even just the idea of being clean versus unclean which struck me as such like a human thing to talk about 
race and things like that and and immigration shows up in this story it was actually on page 68 so she's talking to a whole she's talking to all the ladies maids and stuff like that and the ladies maids are condescendingly surprised at how well she can at how well she can speak and things like that and they're like oh we can understand almost every word you say it's it says While Lady Primrose and Lady Violet each used a lump of golden propolis to fill in the many scratches on Flora's legs, they all sang softly in another language, lilting and beautiful. What does that mean? Flora felt ashamed at the care they lavished on her. It tells of Her Majesty's marriage flights, Lady Primrose giggled. Shh, not for her ears, Lady Violet smiled at Flora. Though you shine so clean, you're barely a Flora at all now. So, like, the idea of where you've been and what you've done, even though you're doing really important work. So, like, part of the reason that Flora is injured and smells at this point is because she had just helped to kill the wasp and was, like, the the hero of that standoff, essentially, with the wasp. Um, and yet it's still viewed as something shameful and, like, lesser and below as well. So, like, there's all this almost microaggression coming at her that shapes the way she thinks about herself and the rest of society. Yes. Yes. And I also want to point out too, that like you, this book's idea or Flora's idea of like B standards in terms of beauty really parallel with our, our society's idea with like standards of beauty in terms of like a white lens and that the Mm -hmm. more beautiful a B is, they're usually described as being slender which is interesting. And like they have uh, a lighter decor, sort of like they have lighter armor. <laughs> They're described as being yellow, which to me was very much like a, a blonde parallel, you know, like skinny and blonde, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> which is not the standards for all cultures in terms of beauty. But as globalization and colonization has happened, has been adopted throughout the world, even non-white majority places. <laughs> which is really sad and disgusting, I think. Yeah. Something that I found was interesting in this book as well, especially in terms of like race and things like that, that I wish the book dived into in a little bit more was also the bees thoughts about themselves versus other bee like creatures like the wasps. Oh yeah. Cause on page, on page 161, we see Flora have another individual encounter with a wasp. And they have a conversation about the fact that the wasps can't make honey and the bees think of themselves, no matter where they're born in the bee hierarchy, they're all higher than every other kind of flying creature like that because they can can make honey. And so she even says, so on page 161, this is the wasp talking. Forgive me, cousin, you are right to mark my manners. The wasp giggled, then shot her a sly look. Do you think we are inferior? Yes, but it is not your fault. Flora did not want to anger the wasp. So, like, I almost wish that that was dove into more because we also see this very clear tension there about, like, the differences between the beehive and that hierarchy, but also almost like hyenas, where, like, even if you're at the bottom of the bee hierarchy, you're still at the top of the rest of the world. Yeah, that's really interesting. Because you're a bee. Yeah, yeah, that is very, very interesting. And I didn't think about that. But as somebody who is writing in London, and we know that England um, has been kind of the head of colonization efforts <laughs> and was where a lot of the literature in which people were described as savages and such. 
happen to be. That is very interesting because all outside species and or cultures, if we're looking at it from a human lens, are seen as inferior. And then there's also this kind of moment of transcendence a little bit in terms of that when Flora is talking to flies later on in the book. Did you pick up that quote? Because I completely forgot about all of that, about the myrid. No? I No, I didn't. To be honest with you, uh, that was a, at a time where I was sort of reading very quickly <laughs> to uh, get ready for this episode. That's okay. I'm just going to kind of summarize it for listeners because we already have a lot of quotes and we're almost an hour in. Yeah. So what happens is Flora is flying during the winter time um, to kind of gather her last effort ditch of like her last ditch effort of pollen and she finds a greenhouse. And she goes in and there's all of these strange exotic plants in there. Um, And one of the plants, and there's also a spider. One of the plants, a few of the plants happen to be like uh, insect eating plants. And she ends up talking to these bees who are trying to kind of like talk to her and warn her a little bit about the spider. And they're like, oh, why do you think I'm so gross? Or not bees, I'm sorry, flies. And Flora does think the flies are disgusting because they're dirty. And they have dirty feet that they, like, muck up the flowers. Yeah, we're going back to the clean versus unclean yeah. thing. Yeah, oh, yeah. And I also wonder, too, I don't know if this is, like, too white lensy, so I will back off if someone tells me to. But, like, we do know that in Indian culture, there is a whole hierarchy in which there is, I mean, or there used to be a whole hierarchy in which there are, like, the untouchables and non, and then, like, the, the caste system. So I wonder if that influenced her at all. Maybe. I could see that. But anyway, yeah, so... The flies are dirty and gross and Flora doesn't like them. But she ends up like talking to one of the young ones and he's getting pollen from one of these dangerous plants and he thinks that he's fine. But then the spider scares him and he ends up getting eaten by the plant. But because she talked, because she dared to talk to like this other fly, um, an older fly helps her escape the spider and escape the greenhouse and go back home. So anyway, she realizes she like has this moment with this young fly and she's like, oh, well, even in my hive, you know, like I'm not one of the the most desirable people. People from my kin also eat waste. So it's okay that you eat waste as well. Yeah, there is that moment of, of breaching. Something that I think is interesting about what you said, though, is the fact that the older fly helps her because that specifically really contrasts to me with bee culture, because bee culture reminds me so much of like the worst parts of capitalism, which I mean, all parts of capitalism are terrible, but like, you can tell how we're feeling right now with the upcoming elections and quarantine and everything. (laughs) (laughs) But like, there's lots of there's lots of moments in this story, page 194 and 218 are great examples where everyone is very quote unquote, equal until they outlive their usefulness. The elderly are killed. One elderly bee gives her life specifically for Flora when she doesn't have enough nectar because she's going to be essentially put aside anyway. So like might as well let this young bee live. So I thought that that was also an interesting moment of pairing for Flora's like mental state because not only is she talking to a fly and like, you know, dirty, gross, whatever. But then on top of that, it's an elderly fly who is helping her. And you're able to see the fact that the older you get, the more wisdom you create as you carry as well to be able to pass on in a way that isn't valued as much it feels like in the bee culture. That is such a great point. I wasn't picking up as much on the capitalist themes. I think I was towards the beginning, but not towards the end of my reading of this book. But you're so right. The whole reason Flora is allowed to live and be abnormal is because she's useful and productive. 
And bee culture is all about being a busy bee. And you have to be productive and, and you have to hustle. And <laughs> exactly. Yeah, once you're too old to hustle, there's no point to you anymore. And also everyone is essential is an essential worker, but not everyone gets the same level of respect. I think though that one of the really intense capitalist moments for me though is the sacrifice of the few for the good of the many when it comes to the wasp attack because on the one hand like that is literally how bees kill wasps right they actually create so much heat that the wasp overheats and dies but then on the other hand it feels so capitalist and so unfortunately poignant I feel like to the crisis that we're going through now where it's just like there is an acceptable level of loss of life Mm -hmm in a capitalist society so long as that society gets to kind of keep going. Yeah. And it's always going to be the most disenfranchised people that we're willing to lose. Like we're seeing right now because we are recording this and you will be hearing this during the COVID-19 pandemic, but we're seeing right now that communities of color in particular are really getting hit hard by this. Yeah. Specifically black communities and native American communities. It's absolutely disgusting. And continually throughout this book, we see that Flora's kin is the most heavily sacrificed because they are like the most disenfranchised. They have the least power. They're at the bottom of the caste system. And yet the entire system would collapse without them. So, yes, that's another thing. Like we're (laughs) we're not paying grocery workers enough, but like they're considered essential employees and the entire system is going to collapse without these people who are making minimum wage all throughout the country. And it's like that even without COVID-19 and we just don't care about them. We're okay with them dying and being too poor to live because the more desperate they are, the more that they're going to work for us and like more they're willing to do. Sorry. God. Ah. (laughs) Do you want to? (laughs) Do you want to talk? There's two categories that we haven't talked about yet. And I'd like to end with the climate change one, if that's okay. So do we want to touch on the whole maleness thing really fast because one thing that's actually a major aspect of the book that we haven't talked about yet is the way that men are treated and treat others in the bee society and it's very disturbing yeah so because males are not as common they're supposedly the queen's favorites and they get all of this praise from all of the woman bees who surround them and they like go crazy whenever their hormones happen or at least that's what the men think and they also feel entitled to do nothing they're very lazy they do nothing because their whole purpose is just to fuck and then die (laughs) and uh they also feel entitled to eat all of the food which is really problematic when the bees don't have as much of a crop So at one point when the bees are starving, there is this moment where like they have a sort of ritualistic killing of all the males who have not been used up by foreign princesses because their whole purpose is to like go mate with foreign princesses um, for different hives. And the male bees that are left over end up getting killed very brutally and violently. And it's kind of like... It's horrifying, but it's also kind of cool because you're like, yes, the woman bees are kind of like, yes, we get to like kill all of these men who have done nothing but like take up our time and done lewd things. Sometimes there's like some sexual harassment that happens. (laughs) One guy right before the killing like kind of mounts and pretends to have sex with one of the worker bees. 
which cannot happen because worker bees, while they have the ability to reproduce, are prohibited from reproducing because of queen pheromones. Like that happens and the bees are like, oh, I cannot reproduce. And I'll link that statistic or that article somewhere in the show notes. Yeah, I don't know. What did you think about that? Because this is like a matriarchy, but even within the matriarchy, misogynism exists. Males are favorited. And then also the only like resolution we get for the favoritism of males is like this great mass killing. (laughs) I was really frustrated by this aspect of the story in a lot of ways. I think that there was actually some interesting points made with the weird balance between the fact that, like, the men are essentially allowed, so to speak, to, like, abuse the women and do whatever they want because the women are hiding this, like, very deep and satisfying knowledge that they're going to get to murder them all, which, like, I think is kind of interesting as a concept, but for me was really ruined by the whole Sir Lyndon thing. Sir Lyndon is rude and grabby with Flora from the very beginning. There's weird sexual harassment overtones to when he forces her to groom him at the very beginning of the novel. Yeah. And yet somehow at the very end, Flora is like in love with Lyndon and they all let him live. And it's very, very weird. I don't read them as being in love. I read them as being friends. It says it explicitly. It says there she's in love with him. When? Yeah, I'll pull it. I'll pull it up. It's okay. at the very, very, very end of the novel. When um, her daughter meets him. Yeah, it says, "Ever at your service, madam." He stood by her side, old and ragged, and beloved to her eyes. Beloved. Flora's heart fell from the sky. No, wait. Flora's heart fell from the sky. I did not call you. No, the dark princess looked at him. I did. Lyndon's whole face and body changed before Flora's eyes. He grew young and handsome and his scent flushed strong. Choose another, Flora whispered to her daughter. There are others. But he is best, her daughter said. That is why you love him. I don't think, okay, love though. I don't think that has to be in love. Except for the fact that she's jealous that her daughter gets to mate the young, sexy version of him. I don't think that has to do with mating. I think it's because Flora is actually... So the bees don't actually know that they're going to kill him. Only the queen and the priestesses know. They don't know about the great ritual killing. And it's actually wiped from the bees' minds later on. But Flora remembers. And I think she knows because the queen, after the great ritual killing, says that after uh, male bees mate, they die. So I read it as her being concerned because Sir Lyndon is her friend and her daughter is going to kill him by fucking him. I mean, that's true. I just didn't feel like there was really a ton of points for redemption for him for them to even be friends, to be honest. Like, it just, because he didn't ever really change his behavior. He was just too cowardly to go out and die. And then she hides him for a while. And, like, during that point, they create a sort of relationship. But, like, it didn't get, for me, at the very least, enough screen time for that kind of, like, loyalty and things like that. And it doesn't, he doesn't ever really apologize for his past behavior. And so, for me, that whole arc of it, does he? He kind of does. Okay, so I'm going to counterpoint you real hard, Maggie. <laughs> so yeah, Sir Lyndon in the beginning is a dick. Sir Lyndon, there, there is like no redemption for some of these things because it is sexual harassment However, I believe in redemption and Sir Lyndon is one of the disenfranchised, which I think is why a relationship can occur between him and Flora. And I maintain that there's nothing sexual there. So like, I don't know, come at me, rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. But my point is that they they definitely have some sort of like affinity and friendship going on at some point. And she 
she talks to him and realizes, like, spares his life. And then he's thankful to her. And he says, listen, I know I should starve. I know they should kill me. I know that we treated you guys horribly. And that in and of itself is kind of an apology. I don't know if he says the words, I'm sorry, but he says that, like, he realizes how awful the men were. And then when they're doing the cluster, he helps protect the queen. So he starts doing some sort of work. And then he, like, he's with the flora, who are the bottom of the caste system. And he doesn't, like, eat. He doesn't eat, like, more than his share. And he only eats. He passes along. Flora brings, after she goes to the greenhouse, she brings some nectar bath. And she wants to originally give it to the queen, but she, like, stumbles upon her sisters first and gives some to them. And she gives some to Sir Lyndon because he's, like, her neighbor. And he, like, passes it on to someone else or something. And then she gives him more. I can see all of those points. I just, for me as a reader, it was not enough. Like, and that's just my personal opinion. It just, like, it didn't, that aspect of it just didn't work for me. I think that's why I read it as her not being in love with him because he would be a really shitty love interest. (laughs) He would be a terrible love interest. Yeah, just awful. But I think to go back to the original point though, like there is this very strange balance in this story where like until Lyndon is forced to sort of like confront with his sins because of like a near death experience, essentially like the men just do whatever they they want and like the women aren't okay with it but also they have to be okay with it and like there's just a lot of weird stuff happening here that makes it a really uncomfortable read and I think that this is to a certain extent it's like simultaneously both a reflection of society and not because on the one hand like we live in a patriarchal society where in many ways like all of this stuff does happen and men can do what they want but then on the other hand, even if only a couple of bees know about it, there isn't any ritual in our society where you mate and then murder your partner. So like mm-hmm. that aspect of like redemption and justice for me is like not met, you know, at, at, at any kind of real place and reflecting on our society. And I think that that's why I have such a hard time relating this aspect of the relating with this aspect of the book, because so much of the other stuff feels so poignant and relevant to everything that is going on and just this specific aspect because it's the way that bees in nature work just felt really difficult for me to contend with personally I don't know I mean I like in theory would kind of be cool with the bloodshed of all the misogynistic males but yeah you're right it doesn't actually (laughs) now you just spit water everywhere um it doesn't actually resolve anything because once there's our new males in the, the hive, um, everything goes back to the way it was. They end up eating and they don't do anything and they're crude and they order the other bees around. That is exactly, I think, the point that I was circling around mentally is that nothing actually gets resolved here. And mm-hmm. like this version of justice doesn't actually ultimately change anything because even with Lyndon and one reformed quote unquote male B, like he's still old as shit and he's gonna <laughs> die because her daughter's about to drop his head off so it's like that's one aspect where like this book creates such a question about individual versus societal reform but like leaves it very open-ended question marky for me yes 
Yes, I agree. I mean, Lyndon does end up helping Flora and her daughter, like, save the hive, ultimately. And I do think like, that's another point of redemption. And the other men follow his lead, but it's only because they, too, have also experienced near death because... They left the hive when no one would feed them what they wanted or something. <laughs> I think that's something that I struggle with in this bee society is the idea that like no one, the older generations aren't ever able to pass down their wisdom to younger generations because bees have such a small lifespan. So it's kind of difficult because it's like, is Flora's daughter, the new queen, ever really going to know and learn from the sacrifices that she made and the transcendence that she was able to do? Or is she just going to be a normal queen because there wasn't, if Flora died before she could really pass a lot of that wisdom on, you know? Like, are the new males going to be able to take after this, this kind of, like, new crop of male thinking or not because they're so young when all of this happens, you know? The only thing I can say, um, probably not the new males because... They weren't raised by Flora, but it does seem what I caught from the story in terms of like world building. It's a, it does seem that the bees are born with a certain amount of knowledge. And Flora does at mm-hmm. one point, while the bees are escaping their old hive and like going out to find a new one, Flora does try and give as much knowledge as she can to her daughter. But I also would like to think, I don't know if this is canon, that during the process in which like her daughter evolves. I forget what they call it, but there's like some sort of process in which you have to hide the egg and then it like comes out of the seal or you, you hide the baby. The baby like sleeps in a little cocoony thing and then bursts yeah, out. Whacked. Yeah, bursts out as like a grown up bee. Um, I think during that process, there is some sort of like knowledge too. So even if the daughter doesn't know everything about her mother, I would think that it would be different because Flora was the person who raised her and therefore, like, who nurtured her and therefore embedded something into her data system. That's my theory. (laughs) I think that I think that's a very hopeful theory and I think that a message that I take away from this book is that change on an individual level is really important, but it works most effectively when you're able to pass down that knowledge and that change to others to create larger and more systemic changes. I agree. I would argue too, though, that there is support for this in the book in that the daughter chooses Lyndon because she has no idea. Like, how is she supposed to know from these like brief moments that her mom cares for Lyndon? I would think that that would have to be some sort of data system. And the fact that she chooses Lyndon because he is also the most disenfranchised of the male bees, I think has some sort of radical implication to it. Yeah. And I think that to be fair, right, like Lily 500 lives on mentally for Flora for a really long time, giving her guidance and stuff. So yeah, I think that there is textual evidence that like in certain ways that wisdom will be passed on. Yeah. Is there anything else that you want to talk about before I get into my climate change points? No, I'm ready. Give it to me, Mags. So we're doing like a a whole month here at at Rebel Girls Book Club, just kind of like about the earth and climate change in general. And I do think that it's worth noting in this novel that underpinning this whole story, a lot of this crisis about the hive dying is because of humans and because of climate change the entire time. It's harder and harder to find food. The hive at large is dying out. Pesticides and things like that kill them regularly. And at one point, the humans come to steal honey, which is viewed by them as being extremely obscene. What they don't know is that they live with a beekeeper. (laughs) Um, And like, that's his whole thing. But there's this really... 
I think, intense underpinning to this story of the fact that, like, all of this hierarchical change could happen in the hive, but in many ways, they're going to struggle with a lot of the same things about keeping people fed because there's this larger system, ecosystem at work that is failing them because of climate change and because of humans kind of killing everything, which I think is also very poignant for a lot of the ways in which lots of people talk about climate change now, which is like, it's really important to solve these other large societal problems like the patriarchy, like racism. But if we can't have a place to live, you know, (laughs) there's only so much that it matters. And I have issues with that general line of thinking and because I think it in some ways implies that we shouldn't be focusing on solving any other societal problems. And I disagree with that. But I do think that there's a kernel of truth, especially in this book, where it's like, yeah, the hierarchy can get better, right? Like the bees can evolve and get better. But if they can't find food and stuff like that, things are going to continue to devolve in the same way. So I just thought that that was a really profound note to sort of end on and also an underpinning of the book that lots of these problems that the hive was having wouldn't be happening if food was less scarce and pesticides weren't killing so many people. So that is my depressing end note. <laughs> Harmony, do you have anything else that you would like to add? Well, yeah, I think on that end note, what, because we're here in the COVID-19 times, so to leave you with this little depressing tidbit, I mean, there is evidence to suggest that the reason COVID-19 is attacking us is because humans keep fucking with wildlife. And I guess this is like more optimistic in a really dark way, like, Hopefully, my big hope for this is that like some of these social systems that are that aren't in place in places like the United States or across the world are going to be relooked at and maybe like changed and maybe our government is going to change and maybe we need a big crisis like this in order to do that kind of like they did in the book to shape up the hierarchy mm-hmm. or to shake everything up. Yeah, I don't know. My point is, yeah, yeah, we should pay attention to climate change. But Maggie's right. We also need different social policies as well and different like we need to be looking at everything from an interdisciplinary and holistic perspective. Yeah, because even when it comes to like, I think that a lot of people think about things like, you know, intersectional feminism and they don't group climate change into that. But it's so real because climate change affects so many social issues and social problems And is going to negatively affect so many disenfranchised people in much more extreme ways. So it like it all it all ends up marrying together. Yeah, we've already seen at least like in the United States, for my layman's knowledge, we know that climate change disproportionately affects people who are in poorer neighborhoods and people of color. And we also know that like different effects on the environment affect our physical health. And that includes things like reproductive health. And women are less... um, do hold less power in our society than men. So it's, of course, going to affect us in some way greater than it does the men. So, yeah, put that in your back pocket and smoke it. Are we ready? (laughs) (laughs) Maggie, what are you reading? Oh, wait, wait, Maggie, is this a feminist book? Yeah, I think so. To me, this is pretty clearly a feminist book, even if I felt kind of weird about some of the ways that, like, the, the males were treated in the story. I think that ultimately it's feminist. What about you? I agree. I think because we're focusing on a female character (laughs) transcending the bounds of her society, and um, it is a mostly female book, 
even though there are a lot of misogynistic men out there in this book. Yeah, I, I would say that this is feminist. And I think also because it deals so much with race and it's coming from a, a female lens, I think that too also is inherently feminist. Yeah, I agree. This was like a really, I don't know. It's just a really fantastic book. So I hope that you all enjoyed it as well. Uh, Harmony, what are you reading? Okay, so right now I I just finished this book. So I've started reading the book that we're going to read next week, which I brought with me so that I remember the title. Um, It is called Honeybee, Lessons from an Accidental Beekeeper. And it's by Mariana Marches. And I'm also audiobooking um, the Ani DeFranco book, which is called like No Walls or something like that. I can never remember. And the third book in the Winter Witch trilogy. What is that called, Maggie? Uh, the Winter of the Witch. The Winter of the Witch. Yeah, I'm audiobooking that too. What about you? It's not, the only reason I remember it is because it's on my bookshelf right in front of me. <laughs> I am reading The Hundred Thousand Kingdoms by N.K. Jeminson, which is a bold choice because I'm infamous for disliking the fifth uh, season series, but I am actually liking this one a lot. So I don't think I have a problem with N.K. Jemison in general. I think I just didn't like the fifth season. And then I'm also reading Assassin's Apprentice by Robin Hobb, because if you thought I was over her, <laughs> I have another thing coming to you. <laughs> My favorite author. <laughs> no, but somebody that I enjoy a lot. <laughs> All right, so we've already talked about what we're reading next week is there anything else that we need to cover homework do we have homework this week Ooh, um my homework i'm gonna try really really hard to cut down on the waste that's happening in my household because even though we read all of these articles about how COVID 19 is ultimately good for the environment i've also read that cities are shutting down like recycling centers and there are some long-term waste effects in terms of like medical care uh, waste and stuff like that happening. So this might not ultimately be something that's great for the environment and it may actually increase our impact on the environment. So I'm going to try really hard to be more sustainable because now that I'm home, I have noticed that like we are, (laughs) we are throwing more out because there's just like more, there's more waste now that we are home. So yeah, I'm just going to be careful with that and try and be like, more into reusable stuff what about you mags yeah i think i have a similar goal i think that if you've been listening to the podcast for a while you know that for me these like small climate related homeworks have been something i've been piling up um and actually i've been doing pretty good at most of them but something i haven't implemented that i think would be really useful in my household is composting Mm -hmm. um and also as weird as this sounds specifically making my own like chicken and vegetable stocks because so much of food waste ends up coming from like parts of animals and vegetables that we feel like we can't use. So I think I really want to try and recycle those both in a way of like creating my own food in different ways. I cook a lot, but like specifically with stocks and things like that, and then being sure to compost afterwards. It's just one thing that I've never really had a ton of access to where I live, but now I'm in a space where I probably could make that happen. So I think it's time. I believe in you, Maggie. I think that's a great homework. Thanks. Yay! All right. I think that's it then for this week. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you guys next week. Um, Stay safe, stay healthy, stay home. Yes, stay safe, stay healthy, stay home. Uh, Take care of yourselves. Self-care is important. Waste less. You can follow us at Rebel Girls Book Club on Instagram, at Rebel Girls Book Club on Facebook, 
at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.